Well, it is great to welcome all of you. It is good to see those of you who are here in person and uh, to welcome those who are checking this out online, maybe in your living room or perhaps somewhere around our world. We know that there are people who are listening in various different countries around the world, which is all, always awesome for us to think about. There are also those that are in uh, another county, uh, Allegheny County, our Moon Campus. Welcome to you or to our classic venue, wherever you are checking this out. We are glad that you are here and glad that you are with us. Today we are going to be thinking about some things I'm very excited to take us into as we transition into a new chapter in our studies, Romans, Grace Changes Everything. It's what we've been thinking about for a number of weeks now. We're continuing on in this series. And I'm wondering as we get started, do you belong to any special clubs or organizations I'm guessing that maybe you do, and for most of you, you probably don't, because actually membership in clubs and organizations is significantly on the decline in our world today, and certainly in America today, it's on the decline, which is one of the reasons that I'm super excited about the fact that we are right in the process, right now at Pathway, of welcoming in somewhere between 25 and 30 new members to Pathway right now, which is awesome, and we're excited about that. Maybe you're one of those people, and, and uh, we're excited to be welcoming you into the fellowship here at this time. But overall, actually, membership is something that in most places is on the decline, which is too bad because when we join something, it indicates the fact that we, we feel some union there or we find some unity together with those other people, maybe because of some passion that we have or some interest that we share. And I was looking around and I noticed some, some organizations that you might want to consider. And I, these were ones that I was uh, taking a look at myself. And, and here's one that you might, want, you might be interested in joining. The Roundabout Appreciation Society. Yeah, these are people who love roundabouts. This, this is something I might consider joining myself because I love roundabouts. I can only imagine the number of weeks of my life that I have lost sitting at stoplights when we could have just zipped around the roundabout and been on your way, right? I might even try to become the president of this organization. The president is called the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it is. You can think about that, and we'll circle back to it. All right, so another one that you might want to consider joining is the Selfish Husbands Club. This, this one is real. It's real. But, but guys, before you get interested, it's not a getaway for you. It's a support group for your wife. That's, that's what the Selfish Husbands Club is all about. Or you might be interested in the Free Compliments Club, where the members walk around and they walk up to total strangers and say nice things to them. I think we need more people in that particular club, or maybe one more here, is the Association of Ugly People. This is a real club. Some of you may have already joined. Yeah, I, I'm not, not going to bring up any particular names, but, uh, you know, that's a possibility, all right? So joining clubs and organizations is something people do, and, and when they do so, it, it unites them together. There is something that uh, indicates that you're wanting to be together. And actually, that's something that we find central to the book of Romans also. There is this idea of people being united, and for a number of different reasons. One of them is that the book itself is written to a group of people that the Apostle Paul, who is the author, is trying to unite or help them to understand the things that they have in common. Because there in the church that he is writing to in Rome, 
you have a bunch of people of Jewish background, and they had that in common. And you've also got a group of people who were of Gentile background, and they've got that in common. But Paul is trying to break down barriers between them and help them to all see what they all have in common together. And specifically what that was, was faith in Jesus Christ and a unity that they had together with one another. But it went beyond that. In fact, that's not even Paul's primary purpose or the primary unity that he is trying to help them understand especially as we come into the chapter that we're looking at today. And the union that he wants them to understand is not so much the one that they have back and forth with one another because of their common faith in Christ, but rather the union that they have in being united with Christ himself. That's what we're going to be talking about today, is being united with Christ. That's what this sermon is going to be all about. And the place that we find this, where Paul is giving us this explanation, is in chapter 6. Grab your scripture journals or whatever you have with you. Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. We turn the page over into this chapter, and Paul is actually turning a bigger corner as we move from chapter 5 into chapter 6, because in chapter 5 and previously, he's been thinking very much about the, the, the fact that there is a justification that people need from their sin, that they're trapped in their sin, and, and he's helping us to understand that Jesus came to provide a way out of that. Then he turns the corner into chapter 6, and now he's talking about not so much that fact, He's kind of taking that as a jump, jumping off point, what he's covered up to that point. And now he is saying, here's how you ought to live. Here's what you ought to understand about yourself. And part of that is this union that there is in being united with Christ. He's trying to help them to understand all of this. And as he starts this chapter, then chapter 6, he's anticipating a bit of a reaction. And you can see that just right out of the start. Because he has said something very powerful and very strong right there at the end of chapter 5. And we celebrated it last week as we saw it. And it's worth celebrating again because it's this, this marvelous and glorious good news where we saw in, in verse 20 there in chapter 5 that Paul writes this. Paul writes where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That is great news for all of us because it means that God is meeting us in the midst of our sin to provide for us what we cannot possibly provide for ourselves. Glorious good news that he has given. Now that verse is great hope for all of us who might fall into sin, but Paul understands that this is also something that people would maybe quite likely take and twist and use for their own purposes and, and go off in a direction that he's not really trying to say there in verse 20. And so right away out of the chute in chapter 6 and verse 1, he's already trying to explain what he means. He's trying to explain what this does mean and what it doesn't mean. So right here, chapter 6 and verse 1, he writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He just said, where sin increased, grace increased all the, all the more, or abounded all the more. He said, so what should we do? Should we just continue to sin so that that grace would just continue to abound? He's saying, I understand that this is something that some of you may very well be thinking, and no doubt some of them were. When we talk about the abundance of the grace of God and how freely it's available to meet us in our sin, there are some people who would take that to mean that we can just live however we want. We can do 
whatever we feel like doing, because we can walk in sin and walk in sin, and then the grace of God is such that maybe it's just like this big pool we can run and we can jump into and experience being dipped in the grace of God and get out and go live it up again and go and wander off into sin again and again, and then that pool of grace is always available. We can always just come and jump back into that pool, and we can just live our lives continually in that fashion, and some people do. They move forward in that way thinking, well, if God's grace is so great, it's greater than my sin, then I can always live how I feel like living and have an opportunity to get back into the grace of God. And so they're taking advantage of the grace of God. Or there's others who would take a look at that and they would say, well, apparently when God exercises and demonstrates his grace, that brings glory to God. And so the more that I sin, the more glory there is that can be given to God because eventually he'll give me that grace and on and on. And this is the sort of rationalizing that people do with their sin. It would be a lot like you going to a marriage counselor, and you sit down with a marriage counselor, and you talk because there are all these problems in your marriage, and you're getting advice, and you just love the advice that you're getting from this counselor, and there's so much wisdom that's coming your way that you decide you're going to make your marriage as bad as possible so that you can continue to get that good advice, so you can continue to experience that blessing. That would be absolutely ludicrous to do that. It would certainly be an abuse of the, of the counseling process. Well, Paul knows that there are people who are going to abuse the grace of God as well, and so he says, should we just go on sinning so that grace may abound? That's what he says there in verse 1. He doesn't even give us time to answer the question. He answers it himself in verse 2. He says, by no means, absolutely not, not in your life. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It just does not compute with Paul that somebody would take on that sort of a mindset, and he's going to go on and he's going to help us to understand how ludicrous that is and why it is so ludicrous and why that demonstrates not that we are celebrating God's grace, but rather we're celebrating our own sin, and as we do so, that we're actually probably not even walking in the grace of God to begin with. He says it says a lot when you're making this choice on how you're going to live your life. And the reason that Paul gives us here for not picking up our sin again once once it has been forgiven, is because he says, you've died to it. And evidence of the fact that you've died to it is that you're going to push your way from it in every opportunity that you have. This idea is very important if we're going to understand what this chapter is about and what it means to be united with Christ. And that leads us to the first of three essentials that I want to throw out there for us. So the big question is this one. How are we united with Christ? How is it that we are united with Christ? Very important, uh, an important question for us to answer. And the first way that we might say, or step one, is in death to sin. That's the first one, in death to sin. That's where this all gets started. This is crucial to understand if we're going to grasp what Paul is getting at here in this chapter. But just what does it mean to die to sin. We got to start there. We've just got to start with some understanding of what kind of the basic terms are, the basic circumstances are. Well, it doesn't mean that you stop feeling a pull in the direction of sin. It doesn't mean that you're never tempted to sin again. It doesn't mean that you will never give in to that temptation to sin again. It does mean that you're no longer under the ruling power of sin. It does mean that it no longer has authority in your life. 
But even though that is the case, it doesn't mean that there won't be times when it sort of rears its ugly head or when it, it wreaks havoc still in our lives. Even though it has no authority, even though it does not reign in our lives, it can still be evident from time to time. At the end of World War II, the Japanese Liberation Army was fighting in the Philippines. But with their surrender to the Allies, the, the soldiers basically all picked up and went home. Now, there was one rather famous exception to that, a Japanese soldier by the name of Hiro Onoda. And here's the guy's picture when he was just going into the army. He didn't get word of the fact that the war was over. He was off in the jungles, and he didn't know that the war was over. So he continued to fight, and he stole food to, to feed himself. He killed farmers to get some of their food, and he would kill livestock, and he'd just wreak havoc and create problems wherever he possibly could. This went on after the war for another 29 years. He continued to fight this battle. The authorities dropped pamphlets to explain that the war was over, and hopefully he would see one of those. And he did see them, but he would later explain he thought it was just all propaganda. And so he just continued to fight on and on. And that's a lot of how it is with sin. See, it's been defeated. It's not something that has a reign or an authority over anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean there aren't circumstances where it sort of rears its head and it continues to wreak havoc and, and, and carry on as it would seek to in our lives, if we allow it. And that's a key thing to understand. It's if we allow it that that can possibly be the case in our lives. Before a believer puts their faith and trust in Jesus, sin reigns. We are subject to its power. We are under its authority. And if you were to say, I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ and I cannot overcome sin, I would say you're absolutely right. You can't. You do not have the authority. Sin has the authority over you because you have nothing that would have ever, ever put it to death in your life. But once we do put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, that no longer is the case. It no longer is the case. And it's important for us to understand the reason why this happens. And Paul helps to give us a very vivid picture as he goes on. And I want to read several of these verses, and I, I think, I hope, I pray that it will all sort of become a little bit more transparent to us as we go. So starting in verse 3, let me just read some of these for you. It says, Paul writes, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. All right, so what Paul is saying here is absolutely transformational. When you become a Christian, it's not like you have your life and you're living your life and you're just going on your way and then you become a Christian, so you take Christianity off the shelf and you put it on yourself and you just continue on with the life that you've been living. 
It's not that. It's not that you put on this new Christianity and you let go of some of the things that previously were there that you don't have any use for any longer. It's not even that. What Paul is saying is that when you become a Christian, the old self dies. Not symbolically dies. The old self dies. It's gone. It is no longer. If God were to go searching for it, he'd say, where did it go? It's gone. It's dead. It's over. It's finished. Understand that. It's not symbolic. It's real. The old self has died. Paul uses this picture of baptism again here. Verse 3 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. See, we're baptized, when we're baptized and immersed in water, we're identifying with the work of Jesus. Yes, we are. We use that sort of terminology all the time. He died and was buried, and we symbolize that by being buried underneath the water. At least momentarily we do that. But it's not just that you are picturing what he did on your behalf. You are picturing what actually happened to you. You're picturing his death, yes, but you died that same death. When you gave yourself over to Jesus Christ, the death that Jesus died was also a death that is yours as well, that you experienced, that you went through, through him, yes, but that you have experienced the fullness of for yourself in your soul, in your spirit. That is what he is trying to get at. I know that this can be a little bit confusing, but when Paul says that we're baptized into Christ Jesus into his death, he's actually not talking about water baptism. That is something that signifies what has happened, but that's not ultimately what is happening that he's talking about. He's talking about when you bow your knee to Jesus and put your trust in him that you're included in his death. Your body, yes, it basically stays the same, but all of who you were at one point, dies with Jesus, and when you are raised you, with him, you are raised, verse 4, it says, to newness of life. Elsewhere, Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't know how you could say it any more plainly than that. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm gone. My body's the same, but that which was internal to me, my spirit, that is gone. It has been renewed. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the significance of the transition that has happened. You've been made new. You are no longer who you were. A new nature, a new entity is what you have become. He says elsewhere to the church in Corinth, he writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You think, yeah, of course, you've been made new. Now you have salvation. Yeah, but he goes on. He says, the old has passed away, like died. The old is gone, and the new now has come. Absolutely transformational. Yes, there are still temptations that are going to come your way. That is true. Yes, there are occasions when you're going to choose to give into that, but they do not have authority over you. You have authority over the temptations. You have authority over all of that sin. We need to understand that because you've been united with Christ in his death, meaning that the old self is crucified as though it was on the cross itself. And there is no need to pick up that dead, sin-infested old nature anymore. It's dead. It is buried. There's no need to dig it up. 
and put it back on like many of us do. Feeling, woe is me about the fact that I've got this sin nature and, and I'd love to be free from it, but it's there and so it causes all these things to happen and what am I supposed to do? It's a part of my nature. Yes, but it's been defeated. It's died. So important that we would understand this. It's dead, and to pick it up is to ignore the reality of the cross because you've been given a new status. You need to understand this. It reminds me of a time back at my first church when I was invited by this nice gentleman to go golfing with him. And I was a bit nervous about it. I remember still I was nervous because he was a member at the country club. And that's where we were going to play. And I'm just this 20-something punk with some old golf clubs. And uh, I was looking forward to it, though. At the same time, I was nervous. And the day arrived, and I, and I drove to the country club, and, and I pulled in, and I saw the bag drop up there. But I was not going to drive up to the bag drop because I just had this ratty old car. And so I tried to slink off into the parking lot. I was going to carry my clubs, but they saw me drive in. And so here the starter drives over in this really fancy, ritzy, you know, golf cart to get my clubs, which I had to get out of the front seat because the the trunk latch was broken, and so that's embarrassing, and I know the guy's just rolling his eyes, uh, or he has to be, but when I see, he's not. He's, he's treating me like I'm royalty. He's like, yes, sir, I can take your club, sir, and here's where you can find your golfing partner, sir. Here's where you're going to find that gentleman, and here's where you can get the range balls so that you can go to the golfing range and warm up a little bit, sir. And, and all day long, it was the same thing. When anybody saw me, they treated me with this tremendous respect and this tremendous dignity like I was royalty. Now, had I done anything at all to deserve that? No. I'd done nothing at all. The only thing that I did was show up under the name of this guy who had paid his dues, who was the one who was the member at the club. And so all of what was his, all of his status, was transferred to me as a gift in that moment and for that day. And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening in this circumstance, is that we are be, being given a gift. Christ is the one who paid all of the dues, but being united with him in his death absolutely transforms who we are, and the power that he has available that rose him in victory over that death in that grave is that which has been applied to us. And so here's the thing, because we've died to sin, because it's gone, because we have been changed, whenever we sin, it's because we choose to sin. It's because we choose to pick up that temptation. It's as though sin has been cast off into this pit, and in order to do so, we have to intentionally initiate grabbing it out of the pit and putting it on so that we go off in that direction. We need to understand that's the nature of the victory that has been won on our behalf. And when, we, when Christ died, we died. That part of us died so that it is no longer, it is gone unless we choose to take it back on. Unless we choose to allow the sin nature to overwhelm the spirit nature that is in us, that is far more powerful than what the sin nature is. When you choose to sin, you choose to sin. It doesn't catch you off guard. It doesn't just spring up on you. You had the power to overwhelm it, and you chose not to. 
I chose not to. In fact, we chose to take it on and to embrace it. Paul's like, why would you ever do that? That makes absolutely no sense. It's a gift, but the gift goes farther, and so does the reality of being united with Christ. Not only are we being united with him in his death to sin or in death to sin, but also in life with Christ. This is good. Being united in death doesn't sound nearly as good as being united in life, but the believer gets both of those things. Verse 8, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's awesome. The death Jesus died was fully sufficient to defeat sin, and his glorious resurrection proves that he has the power to sustain it, the power to continue to provide it, and the power to allow us to continue to rise above it. There's nothing that you are ever going to do, no sin that you will ever commit that is beyond what God has not already taken care of for you. That's good. That is good stuff. Now, some people look on that promise that they have life that, is, that comes through being united with Christ, and they think, that's awesome. And I can't wait for that to be the case. That's an awesome future blessing that God has given to us. And we think about heaven yet to come and, and all of those blessings that come because he's raised. We one day will be raised to life in the resurrection. And, and that all sounds awesome. I can't wait for that day to arrive. And that's all true. That's all of those great things are coming in the future. But the better news is that you don't have to wait for heaven to experience it. The blessing of Christ's victory over death and his glorious resurrection is that which is applied to our lives now. We have been raised with him in life so that we may live that victorious experience day to day to day. It's available if we will take and receive it. Being united with Christ in his life is a promise that we've been given for this moment, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That changes everything, and Paul wants us to think of ourselves in that understanding. Back to our passage in Romans 6, verse 11, it says, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The grammar in that verse is saying that being alive to God is a present condition that is ours in this moment, not something we just have to wait for. This is a today experience, not a tomorrow one. The question is, what are we doing with that today experience? How much are we allowing that to shape who we are and how we live in the moment? But there's one more critical thought here on Paul's mind in verse 11, and I want you to see what he says if you look at it. He knows it's not enough for someone to be alive to God in the moment. They need to, he says, consider themselves alive to God. They need to use what has been made available. It's not enough to just understand that there's something about this being alive to God. You need to consider yourself and live as though that is actually the case and not let it just pass you by. 
Years ago, Carolyn and I were given a gift certificate to a restaurant, and we were really looking forward to going because this is a restaurant we'd never been to because it was too expensive. And uh, we weren't ever going to spend that kind of money just on a meal, but we'd been given this gift certificate, so it's like, yeah, that sounds awesome. We definitely want to do that. And so, so we went to the restaurant, and it was, uh, it was a pretty significant gift certificate, and it's like, we want to use this all up because we know we're never coming back. And so it's like, let's spend it up to the limit. So we did some things we normally would not have done. It's like we got an appetizer, and we got desserts, and uh, we got the more expensive entrees, and we made sure that we lived it up and, and spent everything all the way up to the top of this gift certificate. And it was awesome. We were having a great time, and time came to leave, and Carolyn got up, and she went to the restroom while I paid the bill. And we're on the way home, and Carolyn says in the car, was there any problem with them taking the gift certificate? And that's when it dawned on me, I forgot to use the gift certificate. (laughs) We had just been spending like there was no tomorrow, and I put it all on my credit card. It was just a habit to pull it out of the card and slip it in the black folder, and off they go, and and it was done. All of that money, I had all of this blessing available to me, and I didn't take advantage of it. I just let it slide right by, worthless to my purposes at that time. And that's oftentimes exactly how it happens with God. There is so much that he has provided for us in his death, in his life, that is ours. It's right there. It's in our court. It's waiting to be used. Paul says you need to consider yourself as that person meaning you need to use that which has been made available to you because he knows that far too many people just don't do that. It's a reality for us, but we're not applying it to our account. And all of us fall into this trap. Where there is sin that you see in your life, it's because you're shunning the blessing that's been given and the blessing that is yours. need to understand how this works. Paul tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God for the living of our daily lives, and that leads to the last way we're united with Christ, and that is in pursuit of righteousness. This is what Paul calls us to as he begins to bring this passage to a close. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. Paul uses some interesting language there to make us think of the members of our body as instruments of sin. You can use your eyes for all sorts of sin, like looking on pornography or other temptations that you allow yourself to be drawn into or things you watch in other environments or to use your mouth to speak evil and to speak sinfully or to speak blasphemously about God or to use your feet to to take you into places that you just simply should not be going using the the members of your body as instruments of sin. Paul says, don't do that. That's foolishness. Instead, he says, use the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to speak truth and love, to allow your feet to take you to places where you can glorify God 
or to use your hands to, to serve. That's what people who have been brought from death to life do. Because a believer in Jesus has died with Christ and is a new creation, practicing sin should be something that leaves you in a position where you feel great tension. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and there's a sin that you are practicing, it should be something that leaves you very, very unsettled because you're acting outside of your nature to do so. See how that works? The Spirit inside of you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, should essentially be screaming and gnawing at you when you're allowing sin in your life. Yes, allowing guilt to rise up in you, to just leave you completely unsettled because one who has a newness of life is pursuing righteousness and to pursue anything else would leave us in a place where we should be examining the nature of what actually has transpired in our heart. If you can just continue on in sin and you're feeling like no, no angst about that at all, you need to be asking yourself, what is the true nature of what's going on in your heart? Have you died to sin? Because you can't just continue to allow it to go on without it being something that tears you up inside. See, it's possible to believe in Jesus. This is important to understand. Possible to believe in Jesus but not be united with him in the way that Paul is talking about here. That's because it's not just enough to say a prayer and ask God to be your Savior. See, there are a lot of people who are very happy to have God as their Savior, someone to save them from their sin, but they're not willing to make him Lord. But you can't ultimately give yourself over and put your trust in Christ without humbling yourself and making him Lord as well, surrendering your heart to him. Living a life that is submissive. Yes, we're very happy to have God take care of our sin, but maybe not so willing to make him Lord and to fully surrender ourselves to him. Apart from surrender, there's no evidence of genuine faith and trust. You might say, well, it kind of sounds like you're saying you need to earn your way to heaven. No, 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 that's not at all what I'm saying because here's the truth of that. Obedience isn't the means of salvation. It's the evidence of it. Obedience isn't a means of salvation. It doesn't get you to salvation. You don't earn your way there. It's just evidence of the fact that you already belong to Jesus, that you've already made his will, what it is that you are running after. Paul says that sin will have no dominion over the one who is united with Christ. To what degree does sin have dominion over you? It's a question we need to ask and we need to answer honestly because of all that hangs in the balance. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've died with Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. That's one of the things I love so much about this passage. This isn't a passage full of don'ts. Don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other thing. It's a passage of do's. Do righteousness. Do lean into the new life that you have in Jesus Christ. So Paul is using this sort of language to try to wake us up, to try to get our attention, 
to try to sort of get us off of, of that complacency that sometimes we feel. It's like, well, when I was six, I prayed a prayer, and so it must be settled. Well, I hope that it is, but that's not the evidence that it's settled. The evidence is the fact that we have died with him, which leads to living in him and feeling this tremendous angst wherever sin is present in our lives. So where are you at in that regard? What would God's Spirit be speaking to you even in these moments? It's the influence of being dead to sin and alive to Christ, what that does in us, what that demonstrates in how we choose to live, how we feel pulled to live, that is the thing that you can take your confidence in. And I pray that there is plenty there that is causing you to live in that sort of confidence. But if not, you can. It's the matter of giving yourself fully, not just in speech, but in submission and surrender to God. And it's absolutely accomplished. That's what it means to be united with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a passage that is soul-searching, to say the least. One that causes us maybe a little bit of angst even as we evaluate it, as we think about the nature and the status of our own life and, and the degree to which we, we long for you and the degree to which we hate sin. Father, we don't want to be in a place where we're dismissive of sin and we don't want to lead us to a place where, where we're just fearful either. Paul is trying to lead us to a place where we understand the true nature of the grace of God and what it means to be baptized together with Jesus, that that sin nature is gone. And Lord, I just pray for each one that you would help us to recognize the tremendous victory that we have been given over sin the power that we have over its power, the ability to set it aside, that we're not slaves of anything if we're a believer in Jesus, but that we've died with Christ to that sin, that old person, those old inclinations, the old trap of being in sin and its reign over us. If we've surrendered to Christ, that's gone. We died to that. It's no more. It's not lurking as though it's something that can trip us without our participation. Lord, help us to recognize that. Help us to live day to day with the things that come up, with this, those sins that have consistently snared us and tripped us up. Help us to know that when we face it, we can say, be gone. Be no more. Get out of my way. I serve something else. I serve someone else. My Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with whom I died and have experienced His grace so that there might be newness of life. 
Lord, help us to walk from this place with that sort of victory. And for anyone who would be here and say, you know what? I think I'm resting in some words rather than a heart change. In this moment, I pray that our desire would be to give ourselves over to you, to surrender our lives, and in that moment, die with Jesus and be raised to new life. Lord, thank you for the provision, and thank you for Paul's urgency in helping us to understand all about it. And Lord, may we go from this place celebrating and living the victory that we have. And Father, for anybody who is here who is willfully entering into sin, who's going to leave this place and go into some environment where they're just propagating that sin, Lord, I pray that there would be this disequilibrium that we feel, that we understand what that means, and to no longer willfully just walk in it, but to be freed from it. Thank you for the power to do so. And we pray for your victory now. In the name of Jesus, who died to provide it. Amen.